Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest this week is Timothy Freak. As I mentioned before in these interviews, I, I listen to a lot of this stuff on my trusty iPod, usually about an hour a day, you know, while brushing my teeth and cutting the grass and washing the dishes and eating breakfast and stuff. I'm just listening to spiritual interviews and, and talks. I first came across Tim a couple of years ago when I was listening to a series on the Urban Guru Cafe. Most of the people on that show are what you might call neo-advaita folks, and they seem to be emphasizing the sort of no, not being anyone home and you know nothing to do and don't bother with practices because that implies a practicer and, and so on and so forth. And then Tim came along, and it was like, whoa, how'd they let this guy in? Because uh, <laughs> he has a more complete picture, in my opinion. You know, he's saying, yeah, that's all true, but there's also this. You know, there's the other half of life which we're living. And I found that very refreshing and very inspiring. And I've kind of been on the lookout for Tim Freak audios ever since. Although in the last couple of weeks, I've listened to them about an hour a day. So I've, I've really been immersing myself in your world. And it's really been a joy. So let me just read a brief intro so people know who you are and then we'll, we'll proceed. This is from Tim's website. Uh, Tim is a philosopher or lover of wisdom who is pioneering a simple new way to experience a profound spiritual awakening, which fully embraces our everyday humanity. He has spent his life exploring the awakened state he often simply calls the mystery experience. Tim has articulated his own evolutionary philosophy of lucid living designed to help people go beyond ideas and actually experience a deep awake state, which replaces outdated spiritual jargon with clear new concepts which are simple to understand. He has also developed a profoundly simple mystery of the moment attention technique and a number of powerful eye-to-eye practices, that's capital I to I practices, which quickly awaken practitioners to the mystery experience and help them commune with others in oneness and big love. Then it goes on to talk about Tim's degrees and the many books he has written, about 20 of them so far, uh, one of which was a top 10 bestseller in the UK and USA, which is called The Jesus Mysteries. Tim kind of calls himself a stand-up philosopher, a concept he developed from the ancient idea of a philosopher as a traveling spiritual entertainer who transformed people's consciousness. I also take it as a, a sort of a take on the term stand-up comedian because you have a great sense of humor, and I really appreciate that. And in light of the fact that you do, I'd like to start with a frivolous question, which you probably will give a profound answer to, which is, uh, when you were in school, uh, was your last name an asset or a liability? <laughs> yeah, you know, you can survive school with a name like Freak. You can just do anything. <laughs> I mean, I can imagine one crowd saying, hey, Freak, get over here, I want to talk to you. And another, another crowd saying, whoa, man, that's a cool name. <laughs> well, you, you, I think the great thing is, you know, kids can be very mean. So they, they'll find something. But with me, it was all so obvious. It was all laid out right there. Like, want something? Here it is. He's called Freak. <laughs> and I think it's been an asset. It made me not take myself too seriously from a very young age. It meant that I had to be able to roll with the, you know, the things that came towards me. And, uh, I've enjoyed being a freak. I have. I've never, ever regretted it or wanted not to be so. Was, well, was, the crowd I hung with, that was considered to sort of be a compliment, you know? We called ourselves that. <laughs> you have a lot to say. I mean, you've written a lot of books, and, you, and you know, as I listened to you, I kind of broke down what we might be talking about into several categories. One is 
you know, your own personal spiritual odyssey, starting from, I suppose, the most significant incident at the age of 12 and then moving onward. And then there's what you teach these days as a teacher or a stand-up philosopher. And then there's your whole take on Christianity, which I think is fascinating. And I don't know if we'll get to cover all of these in this one interview. And if we don't, we'll, we'll do a second one in a couple of months. Um, but let's start wherever you would like to start, maybe with your own spiritual journey. That would be appropriate if you think... Here we are in this funny being alive business. The thing which always struck me, Rick, and it still does all the time, is how strange our predicament is, that we're, we're thrown into this incredible experience of, this, of being a body, of sensation, of just the whole gamut of life, which it is so, on the one hand, so beautiful, and then on the other, so cruel, you know, where miracles happen and terrible things happen, and, and it's all thrown at us, and, you know, we, don't, we haven't got a clue what it is. And, and that has been the most central thing since I was a kid. We don't know what this is. And it used to amaze me that so many of the grown-ups that I would see as a child as I do now, go about as if they know what this is. And nobody knows what it is. Nobody knows what it is. Isn't that amazing? I mean, that seems like the most significant thing about life is that fundamentally, underneath it all, nobody knows what it is. And when I was about 12 years old, something happened when I went right into that mystery. And I really became consumed by it. And I was just an average kid, you know, and sitting on this hill over my little sleepy hometown in the southwest of England where I grew up with my dog, <laughs> quite romantic, really, the boy with dog on the hill, uh, and uh, just being with, you know, what is life? What am I? What is, why is there suffering? All those big questions. And something happened. And at the time, I had no idea what it was. And, and in retrospect, of course, I had lots of ideas about what it was, but... And I would say now, it was the first time I, I entered this deep awake state, or this loose state I call lucid living. And the, the most important thing that I remember very vividly is entering this big space of oneness and love. This incredible love, just from nowhere, just like as if I'd slipped into this other world, which, which was just full, pulsating, just like, just thick with love. And, and little Tim, really just was overwhelmed. I was in tears and, and it was just, mm. I felt so loved and also a strange sense that I was the love loving Tim. And what that did for me was it, it resolved all my questions and it, it didn't give me any answers, but it suggested that this question I could never quite ask, the really, really big question, you know, life, the universe, everything question, it could never quite be said and that the answer that I was looking for also couldn't be said. So you were already asking questions at that age. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, as long as I can remember. That's um, great. I mean, when I was that age, I was thinking, am I cool enough? Is, how's my hair look? You know, and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got over that one. <laughs> so from as long as you can remember, you had been sort of asking the deep questions. Yeah, life's always seemed profoundly mysterious. Strange, you know, just... And I had a profound, I mean, I remember, you know, I must have been about eight or nine going for a walk with my father and asking him these questions and him looking down at me and going, well, Timothy, <laughs> greater men than you and I have asked these questions and never found an answer. Uh -huh. and, and I can remember, maybe with the arrogance of, of, of being a child, you know, youth, but I can remember feeling, oh, if there's a question this big, 
if life itself is a question this big, then there must be an answer this big. Mm. There must be a response this big. And what happened to me on the hill was that I, I found it. And what, what the answer was not words, it was not something intellectual, it was actually a change in my state of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And what that did for me is it set me off on a journey which has been my life of trying to understand this shift in the state of consciousness, how it can happen, and going there again and again and, and, and trying to get to know it. And sharing it with others is, has been a big part of it right from the beginning also, because I started to find as a teenager that I would, I would enter just spontaneously. I had no way of, of making it happen. You know, it was just, well, here I am again. And mm. we'd be in this big space. And I'd find that other people who were with me would start coming into the same experience. And because of something you were saying to them or just because of some silent contagion that was... I thinking? think it's more like the silent contagion. I mean, certainly the people would catch my enthusiasm because I'm quite enthusiastic about it and, and uh -huh. that would help. But, but I think really it's that because we're all one. Yeah, yeah. And so when one of us moves, there's a good chance that, that people near mm -hmm. us move also. Yeah. And, and also because it's really not very far away. In fact, it's incredibly close. Mm -hmm. It's right there waiting for us so that when somebody moves into it or I mean this is this is the phenomena which gets turned into something very grand about being around your know, special people I don't believe in special people I'm certainly not one and what I see is that we're all like it we're all special and that when any of us come into this big love or come into this deep awake state then those around us do too which is why now what I'm, I do is I get people together to mm -hmm. enter the state rather than seeing it as it was for me, I think, in the 70s and in the 80s, where it was a very personal thing. It was all about something you did on your own, for yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, you closed your eyes and you went within and you meditated and did all that. Was that actually, it's, it's, a, it's something we, which is even better to do together. Yeah, no, there's definitely that influence. I've, I've been in groups of like 8,000 people all meditating together at the same time and all. It's, it's, uh, it's powerful, yeah. Um, I wouldn't, I would just sort of beg to differ slightly on the special people business. I mean, I know what you mean, because ultimately we're all the same person and there's nothing ultimately or essentially special about anyone. But as reflectors, you know, there's a difference between a five watt bulb and a hundred watt bulb and a thousand watt bulb. Some people seem to be able to kind of reflect this with much greater fullness and have a sort of a more... Um, catalytic influence on, on those around them than others, you know, but, uh, but it's the same light, you know, like the incredible string band said, light that is one, though the lamps be many. <laughs> I think they might have taken that from Rooney. Uh, yes, of course you might. And it's like anything in life. You know, there's some people who can, you know, do amazing things with a the football. There's yeah, some yeah. people who can do amazing things with music. There's some right. people that can do amazing things with this. Mm -hmm. um, I guess the place I've arrived at after many decades is that what's important is that we see it like that. Because what happens with, the, when we elevate people, we actually create something which gets in the way yeah. of us realizing that it's in us. You know the old Buddhist line, which is kind of provocative, where they go, if you see the Buddha on the road, kill him. Right. Say, Whoa, okay, what's that? <laughs> well, what, what, what they're trying to say there, very Zen line, you know, is look, if you think it's outside of you, you've completely missed the point. It's what you are. So. My feeling is that, that, that we've, we've, since the kind of 50s, 60s, we've brought, we've, we've, our own religious tradition really collapsed, and probably rightfully so, because it was, it was moribund. But we brought in a lot of Eastern religion, 
some of which is absolutely fantastic and has had a massive influence on me. But we also brought in a whole load of things which were culturally alien and really don't help. And one of the things we brought in, which I myself was involved in for some time, is this idea that there are fully realized mega beings. And I think it gets in the way. It, you know, this whole arriving idea uh, that there's somebody else who knows. Uh, and whereas my experience is that if you get to know these people, they turn out to be surprisingly like you and I. They're very good. They are extremely good at being bright lights. Wonderful. And we need them. Um, you know, all praise to them. And, and, and thank God they're there. But they're also human beings. Everyone is. Absolutely. And, and seeing that and seeing we're all in it together gets rid of this fantasy. That there's somebody somewhere and I should be like them if only I could. Yeah. Whereas actually, you know, we're like we are. We're all like we are. And we're all caught in this polarity. We're all great souls and assholes. All of us. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, I mean, one of my motivations in starting this show was I live in a small town, 10,000 people, where about 3,000 or so meditate. Um, you know, it's the home of Marshi University of Management, which was founded by Marshi Mahesh Yogi. And there are a lot of people walking around this town who've been meditating 30, 40 years who still have this attitude of like, well, enlightenment must be like being like him. And I'm not like him. And therefore, I must be like lifetimes away from it or something. Just as you're saying, I think that can be an impediment. And a lot of the trappings of a spiritual teacher have nothing to do with consciousness or state of consciousness or anything. They have to do with his cultural conditioning and the way he dresses and the accent and the kind of food he eats and all that kind of thing. But a lot of people sort of attribute all those things to the state of enlightenment, you know, say, well, that's what it's got to look like. But it doesn't have to look like that. It can look like... It has to look like you. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It has to look like you. And, you know, personally, I, you know, I've spent decades chasing this idea of some permanent state. Mm -hmm. Whereas when I actually examine life as I experience it, what I see is that everything in life is flowing and Mm -hmm. changing. The thing which is permanent has no qualities. Exactly. Now, you can know that, but the knowledge of it will move and change. And, and why I think I'm able these days to take people pretty quickly to a very deep awake state where you know, you just, you know, there's, you feel the big love, you don't miss it. it it's, no, it's not an abstract thing. It comes right down into your body. Is because if you take away that idea that it's some unachievable goal, it becomes something you can enter into straight away. And it becomes something natural. In that way, I guess my approach is much more Taoist. Hmm. It, it, it's just natural. It's just there waiting for you to step into it. And you don't get a hang-up about you know, having to be perfect or, or the fact that you're human. Your humanity is great. It's what's so lovely about us. You know, I, you know, you're different to me. That's why it's so interesting. Yeah. And yet we can both come into this big love together. Yeah. If you think about it, I mean, what this enlightenment thing is supposed to be is it's supposed to just be a recognition of the reality of life and if it's the reality of life it's got to be here already it's not like some whole new entirely different element is somehow going to jump in all of a sudden and surprise us whatever it is the essence of it or the component of it must be in our experience right now it's the like thing which is always there i think you know that's what yeah we're paying attention to the thing and that's why it's so elusive it's so elusive because it doesn't change because it is always, it's this permanent presence of awareness, which is what we are. It's this, it's, it's always there. And we miss it because we don't, it doesn't move. Yeah, I like to think of it as like, what if it were like a tone, you know, and there's this tone playing, and it's always there. And after, at first, maybe you think, okay, I hear this tone. And after a while, he's like, you know, tone it out, so to speak, because mm-hmm. it's always there. But if at any point you wish to hear it, 
you just turn and put your attention. Oh yeah. Okay. There's that tone still going on, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Of course, it's not a tone. It's just a metaphor. No, but it's not. <laughs> and that's the thing with all of these. You know, we, we use metaphors because we have to. Yeah. It's, never, it's not any of the metaphors. One thing I find is, is that sometimes in more contrasting situations, it becomes more obvious. Like if I'm, you know, if I'm just sitting at my computer working all day, and all, maybe not so obvious. But if I, let's say, have to travel and I'm rushing through an airport trying to catch a connecting flight and I'm out of breath and I'm, there's all this chaos, it's like it's almost though the, the, the silence becomes much more evident in contrast to the chaos because it's a new situation or something. I, I agree. I think newness is very powerful. And it's because when there's a new situation, we recognize the freshness of life. And we, it's actually we're becoming conscious of the mystery. We're beginning to enter into the mystery of life. And when we're in habitual states, we don't notice the mystery. You know, we don't even really feel alive. Yeah. We're kind of numb. And that numbness is where we don't feel it. So if you throw yourself into a new situation, even one which is quite difficult, there's much more chance you'll, oh, God, I'm alive. You know, what is this? This is, this is happening. And as that occurs, there's much more chance. You become more conscious. And as you become more conscious, you notice these deeper states. Yeah. And it's not only I'm alive, but it's like, okay, I'm out of breath. I might, might miss my flight. There's all these people. It's crowded. But I'll, even more predominantly, perhaps, there's this deafening silence. Mm -hmm. You know, there's this pure silence that just perseveres or continues in the midst of the chaos. And, and it's, the contrast makes it more evident. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It is loud, the silence. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. In, in a way, it is. So you kind of mentioned that you had this experience when you were 12, and, but then uh, it wasn't a one-shot deal. You, you popped in, it kept popping in periodically after that um, for no apparent reason, it just sort of... Yeah, yeah, for no, it, was, it, was, it would just happen. Um, and I mean, I was, I was uh, you know, very quickly looking for it and recognizing it and, and welcoming it. And it would change and get deeper and, and, and take me to all different places. And, and I was doing all that I could also to explore it. But what I found was that often the deepest moments of awakening wouldn't come when I was meditating or, you know, I don't know all the different things I was doing. It would come in a blues club or, you know, a coffee bar or mm -hmm. you know, by itself. And I feel lucky for that because I didn't associate it, therefore, with, you know, if I'd woken up for the first time, as many people do, in a temple or a church or doing this, Mm -hmm. then I would associate it with that. Whereas what's happened for me is that it's just happened naturally, so I associate it with being natural. And yeah. that is, leaves things wide open. Mr. Natural. Mr. Natural. <laughs> well, you did sort of have that initial awakening on a hilltop, but I presume you didn't have to keep running up to the hilltop to, to have it again. It just sort of yeah. happened. And, That's right, yeah. And you didn't necessarily come down from the hilltop with stone tablets or anything. You just... <laughs> no stone tablets. No burning bushes. <laughs> oh, if only. Then, you know, now I'd be running a religion. I'd be a rich man. Yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> you might get yourself crucified too. But. <laughs> yeah, there's always that chance. Um, so, did it take you long to kind of realize that this experience you had had on the hilltop was something that others had had throughout history and you began to read their books and so on, or it wasn't like you thought, you, we were able to put it in a context? <clears throat> what a great question. Yeah, and I, I wonder, you know, it's a long time ago and, and memory plays tricks on you, so I'm, I mean, it'd be interesting, God, if you could look back and actually see, but my sense is that quite quickly, I mean, I know certainly within a few years I was reading 
the Upanishads and the um, Bhagavad Gita and uh, was very influenced by Mahatma Gandhi and and by the age of 16, 17, it was involved with the guru, and and mm -hmm. and, and I think I, I certainly looked east. Uh, ironically, I've written my my bestsellers have been on the Western tradition. Personally, I like most of my contemporaries and the, the people that are a little bit older than me. Uh, there was the East was opening up; it was arriving. I mean, I can remember going to hear people talk about Maharishi and people like that when they just arrived, and mm -hmm. and uh, feeling like, oh, what's this? This seems to be about the same thing. These people seem to understand what I'm saying. Did you go through a, a wild, crazy teenage phase, drugs oh, and yeah. Yeah, alcohol yeah, yeah. and all that stuff? <laughs> well, especially alcohol a bit, you know, but yeah. I was fascinated by... Psychedelics? Psychedelics. My first encounter with really serious psychedelics was LSD, and, and mm -hmm. I would still say that my first LSD trip was one of the most uh, transformative and important experiences of my life, and mm -hmm. utterly beautiful, utterly amazing. And, just, and I think then, I, what I really felt was, oh my God! you can actually take something which opens up this space. Uh, because for me, it, it really opened up the same space. It was, you know, there was all the psychedelic stuff, which was fascinating and interesting, but underneath it, there was this profound love and oneness, just like I'd been on the hill and ever since. Was, ah, my goodness, that's interesting, isn't it? So, and I'd been reading, of course, Aldous Huxley and Ram Dass. And yeah, I was reading him on, the first time I did LSD. We sat around all night trying to figure out what bardo we were in, you know. <laughs> 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 and, and bizarrely, I mean, I have a, a dear friend, Peter Gandhi, who I've written a lot of books with, who mm -hmm. now lives at the end of my garden, or I live at the end of his garden, really. <laughs> uh, it's uh, all a matter of perspective. Indeed. Basically, he lives in my old house. I've moved next door with uh -huh. my family, and my office is at the end of his garden. I see. In the 18th century England, they would have these magnificent gardens, and they'd use, fill them full of ancient sculptures, or mock ancient mm. sculptures, and they'd often employ what they called an ornamental hermit. Uh -huh. He wasn't really a hermit. He just looked like he was a hermit, so it was hmm. part of the garden. So Peter calls me his ornamental philosopher. Okay. At the, at yeah. the end of the garden, that's my role now. But he was there. He was there for my very first LSD trip and, and has been there ever since, really, just, just being able to dive into it. So the other thing which has happened for me, which is hugely uh, lucky, is that I've shared the journey with many, many people and with some people for decades. So we've been able to see it as, ah, we're, we're exploring this this strange what is it yeah it's cool I, I i was sort of charmed by your um references to your lifelong friendship with peter it's really sweet to have somebody like that that you can kind of grow with that st stays with you i mean we pass through many friendships in life and and a lot of times it's sort of like you know meeting someone on a train station and then our train keeps going but you and he have stayed on the same train i know it's strange and, and actually it's not just peter there's 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 um, a few other very very significant people that i've been lucky enough you know i think you know when you when you have these profound experiences with people there is always a connection and uh, those connections have stayed solid over the years for me and, and we've been touching base on the journey. So as you grow and change and you, you know, realize you've been wrong, which is what the journey really seems to be, constantly <laughs> realizing you've been wrong. Oh, hey! I'm in, I'm in, I've been wrong! I've been wrong! Hey! Yeah, I've been wrong like this! Oh, wow! And then something new opens up. And, and I guess that's the other resistance I have to the idea of arriving is that to me you know it's just endless it seems yeah. like the journey is endless and every time you think you've got somewhere you're going to have the you know you're going to be kicked up the ass and, and and moved on because you haven't it's like there's always more it's life is big 
there's a T.S. Eliot quote from Burton Norton that I meant to print out to be able to read it at times like this, but it's something about, you know, coming coming back home and discovering the place for the first time, you know that? You arrived <laughs> where you started and yeah. you know the place for the first time. Yeah. That was a massive influence for me. Oh, that's uh, great. Peter and I would sit when we were at school together and we'd get together a group of friends, some of whom are still on the path with me now, and we would read T.S. Eliot to each other because he, he, you know, there's a very different, very conservative kind of Englishman or American mm-hmm. really, but it may become English. And... Uh, who just, you know, the moment in the rose garden. That's what that moment of awakening is. He calls it the moment in the rose garden. Hmm. Well, he was very much influenced by Vedanta, actually, by Eastern teachings. And, yeah, indeed. Yeah. He, was, he, was a, he was a Church of England man, but he was certainly very influenced also by, by well, he was an incredibly educated man and, and, hmm. and had great vision. And, and the four quartets, it's just one of those, it's a scripture. It's ah. a scripture. So um, did it take you very long to realize that drugs weren't going to do it for you and you were probably frying some brain cells and you better get onto something more natural? <laughs> well, I, I, I never, I never, it always felt like it wasn't something you, I always took it very seriously. I yeah. So it was never something I did a lot. It was something uh-huh. I did as a special event. It was always, uh, at, you know, I was quite um, spiritual in those days. So it was always something which I, I did with, you know, great intent and, and mm-hmm. saw as something important. Couldn't understand for the life of me people who were just sort of dropping a tab and watching TV. That just, yeah. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was something which was important. So mm-hmm. it was never, it never really fried me too much. Um, in fact, I think it was just, for me, it was beneficial. I know for a lot of people it hasn't been, but it was. Uh, and, and, in, and that naturally led on to other, it was only ever a part of what I was doing anyway. Um, it was like, ah, right, you can get it through that. Oh, and you can get it through this, and you can get mm-hmm. it through that. Oh, my God, you can get it all these different ways. <laughs> And uh, I understand from listening to you that at, a, at some point you, you got into uh, the 14-year-old perfect kid. That, you know, what was his name? Maharaji or something like that? Guru Maharaji. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, that's right. Um, that was the guru I had when I was 17. Uh-huh. So he was only a couple of years older than me. And, and uh, another friend of mine um, was involved in him. And I became very involved for a while. And traveled around the world and, and got blown away and practiced his knowledge and yeah it was great it was great but you know eventually there was something wrong there was something not right and I guess that's the that's again about that thing about oh I've been wrong is mm. that what keeps the journey moving is when you've been involved in something you've given it your heart and soul and then it's like oh hang on no but now I've I've gained something but there's something missing and then you move on to the next stage of the journey yeah, I kind of uh, wouldn't. I wouldn't use the word wrong. It was, it's sort of like you're climbing stairs, and you, and you, it wasn't like the step you were just on was wrong. But it's now it's time for the next step. You know. I know. I, I'm not provocative. <laughs> I just can't help myself. It's just my nature. I just like the idea of being like, oh yeah. And and I think and I think a part of the reason I say this is because I think it's very good that you hold that with everything the whole time. That you know, I have this whole set of ideas, a story I'm telling. And yet, what makes the story interesting is when you move on and you go, ooh, maybe I'm wrong. And I think it's good to hold that the whole time so, you, so that the concepts are held very lightly. So you're growing and changing all the time. Absolutely. And when you arrive at each step, if you kind of have the attitude of, okay, this is the final step. There's no more climbing to be done. I'm staying on this step, you know, forever. And yeah. everybody, everybody else should be on this step. This is you know? Know, really is, you know, like, so, I, mean, my, I mean, me for years, you had this idea of, you know, if only I could arrive. 
and I could be some sort of uber Tim, some amazing woo, you know, that's really woo. And then what's happened is being like, well, why would I ever want to arrive? Because the joy is the new discovery. The joy is the constant feeling of, of moving. And life itself seems to be saying that, doesn't it? It's just movement. Everything is moving and changing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're kind of zipping through your your various stages that you've <laughs> been through. Wall, so. <laughs> we, don't, we don't need to belabor them too much, but feel feel, feel free to dwell on anything that's uh, you know, of significance that we might be skinning skimming over. Um, so what next? The, you, you, at some point, you started to realize, well, maybe this whole guru trip isn't for me. And and what did you turn to then? For you know, I tend to be for quite an intense personality, I suppose. So it was like right in, and then came out. Oh, loads of things, Rick. I mean, I, I had an outrageous year with an occult community studying Western magic. I did lots of meditation, experimented with every sort of mind-altering substance I could lay my hands on and see what each one of them did. Read a huge amount of books, studied philosophy, went on meditative retreat for a year, twice, cutting myself off from things. Uh, uh, and also I meant to my creativity has been part of my, my, my particular path. I, I, I've always been creating, so words, but also music, and just some way of trying to express the mystery as well, because that takes me deeper and opens up things. And During so, all this, was there a sense of um, kind of desperation or yearning, or well, were you... Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes? Yeah, yeah, awful, awful periods of being dreadfully lost and... Yeah. Uh, uh, it being really hard and then feelings like you know I'm sure you have them where you're just like everything's hey I'm just like hey it's just I'm with it and it's like magic and every door opens and and then suddenly that ends and you're back sitting there on your own thinking oh no I'm so lost and it hurts and, <laughs> and, and uh, why am I so useless and god I hate being alive and then oh, god it's so great to be alive and you know so yeah. all of those polarities yeah. did you find that over time though that it sort of the the negative ones sort of matured into the positive one and that there's a more uh, more consistency of of just smooth functioning and and contentment or do you still seesaw back and forth Ooh, um i think there is uh um, yeah no, the, the whole whoa yes yes oh my god <laughs> that that is gone thank you uh, equanimity I, yeah yes but you know i i certainly wouldn't want to give anyone the impression that somehow you know like tim freak's life just goes Ooh, it doesn't you know i mean i've got i was just um today with my son in the hospital he's very sick and you know when those things happen i'm a family man you know ooh, it's, it, it hurts and you're worried and you know it but what's happened for me now is that i no longer see my human journey as somehow taking me away from my spiritual journey they're the same thing so mm -hmm. that this deep love this presence this awakening this lucid living we can get into what these ideas mean later but that's there so I can dare to enter into my life just as it is and beat him as he happens to be. And uh, so there's periods which go, you know, when I'm, say when I'm writing, I'm writing a book, there's periods where it's just, oh, magic. And then there's other periods where it's really hard. Yeah. And, and that's life. And I don't expect that to be different anymore. You know, no, I mean, as long as you're alive, there's definitely going to be waves on the ocean, you know. Um, and not only that, Rick, but it's like I've come to the place where it's like I want that. Yeah. I mean, well, it's a good thing you do because you're going to get it whether yeah, you want it or not. Yeah, <laughs> but, you know, there was a time where I, I thought I, I didn't want that. Yeah, me too. And, and my dad died a little while back, and, and he was immense suffering. He had a stroke. He could just move his one arm. 
Mm. He was lying in a bed. He was just calling out as best as he could, help, help, help. You know, it was incredibly distressing. And, and I realized being with that that there was this man who I was my dad who was dying, and it was shit. And yet, within that, there was also this incredible love that was there. This, this, the, like the, the awakened state isn't, it just holds everything within it, whatever mm. it is. Just holds it all. And that I realized that, you know, the idea that I could be with my dad and be unattached was horrendous to me. Or that I could not suffer because I was so enlightened was horrendous to me. Mm-hmm. What I, I wanted to suffer, he was my dad. Yeah. And so what I'm exploring now, which is really exciting to me, is that, if, is that we can use the big space, use the deep awake space, to enable us to actually enter into our humanity and really just to, 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 to be the vulnerable human beings that we are. We can go up, we go down, we go in, we go out, all the things which a human being does, and make that journey. But what the, what the, the deep awake does for me is allows me to do it. Because otherwise, it's just just too much. Yeah, that's that's well put. It sort of mitigates or buffers yes. or yeah, pro- yeah, provides a kind of a foundation on which the the waves can rise even higher. Actually, I mean, you know, you could use the analogy that in a small pond, if 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 we try to rise, if it tries to rise up in high waves, it'll just stir up a lot of mud. But in an ocean, it can rise up in great waves. You know, much greater waves because it has that ocean status, that depth. It's you know, it's, it's a great old image the ocean and it's got a lot to be said for it because you know our whole being is like that it's it's our being isn't one thing it's a whole spectrum which is held together it's it's these two poles which Mm -hmm. maybe we can explore but the the there if you like the ocean if you know if the waves are the waves are going to rise and fall and then there's this great stillness at the depths right and the waves are individual and the depth is all one and Mm -hmm. those two sit together now, just being tossed around by the waves is a very, very difficult experience. But being able to allow the waves because you know there's also the depths, that changes the experience. Yeah. No, it's great. I mean, because, you know, I'd say probably the majority of the world is stuck in the, in the state of, I am just a wave, and that's scary, and it's threatening, and, and I hate all those other waves, and, you know, and they, or those, those waves should be more like me, or whatever. And well, then, the you know. Coming to crash into me. Yeah. And uh, then, there's, then there's a certain, there's a subset of in the spiritual world these days of, I am just the ocean. You know, Massive. and and there are no waves. Massive. You know, and uh, don't don't try to pretend you're a wave because you're not. Don't do wave things because it only reinforces your waviness. You know, just be an ocean. <laughs> you mentioned it in the introduction. The great irony for me is, you know, when I started really working around oneness, it was it wasn't very fashionable, and uh, Advaita had really not made it to this country hardly at all. And so I'd been part of the problem, I would say. Were you? <laughs> because, well, in a way, I mean, in the sense that, you know, I, I, my, the, what I wanted to do was I was having this extraordinary experience of oneness, and I wanted to share it with others. And so it was like, come on, come out, come out, come out, come out, come out, come You know, just, you know, there is no Tim, there is no you, it's just, and for, there is a place where, my God, that's so obvious, mm-hmm. and it's extraordinary to see. But now, as I said, the journey keeps moving on. Right. And ironically, there's now people teaching Advaita on every, you know, the end of every road. <laughs> right. It's like, you know, it's like I meet someone, and that's great, you know, it's like, that's great, you know, how, how wonderful that that can happen so quickly. 
And yet what I'm seeing is, oh, now it's like, oh, look, hang on, let's not lose the other pole. Let's not lose the humanity. Because that's where the love is. That's where the feeling is. And, and, and you'll hear a lot of people tell you, you know, oh, well, you know, don't get involved in that, the feelings. It's just, you know, it just is. And it's like, oh, well, yeah, it is just is, but it's not just is. It is, and it's appearing as this. How amazing. Yeah. And to actually enter into what, what the isness is appearing as and to allow the human, not just to allow, but to truly engage with and enjoy and, and, or just surrender into, or whatever word works for you, the human adventure. That seems to me very precious, and that's what opens up this big love. And the irony, like I said earlier, is that once you get that, this all-elusive big state, the oneness, the big love, the deep self, opens up much, much, much more quickly. Because most people I meet think they can't experience that because they keep thinking they're just this. And once you just go, well, look, don't worry about that. That's going to stay. But see the other as well, not instead. It's like, oh, oh, there it is. Oh, my God. Oh, wow. And there it is. That's great. Um, you know, it's like I don't totally get where, where these people are at, some of them. I mean, they say, for instance, you know, don't meditate because that implies the existence of a meditator. I mean, that to me is like saying don't eat because that implies the existence of an eater. <laughs> you could say that about anything, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it's all yours. Copyright free. <laughs> um, sometimes I, you know, I doubt myself. Sometimes I think, well, is there something missing in my development? Because I experience, sure, I experience the, the non-person level of, of life, but I also experience the person level of life, and yet these people say they don't have that. They've, there's, no, there's no one there, and I think, well, maybe I haven't reached it yet or something, but then I think, no, it's, it's actually the whole package, you know, it's this and that. I don't know if I can convey this. It's something which I'm still working on knowing how to say, but it feels to me more like, look, there are options into what, in what we experience, and you can focus on you know, anything. You can focus on golf, you can focus on music, you can focus, and you can focus on this deep oneness. And if you just focus on it, and, you, and it's amazing, and when you first come across it, I mean, it blew me away completely, you know, to when I found a, that I could start coming into this and, and, and really got the, 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 what gets called the teaching of no self. And, but it's an option. You don't, you, it's not the only place you can look. And then it becomes, well, is that the, you know, there's not, it's, whenever you hear the word, it's just something. Yeah. You know, you know you're talking to a reductionist. Uh -huh. You know, no, it's just, you know, whether it's a, a skeptic going, oh, that's just your imagination, or whether it's uh, a spiritual teacher going, no, no, it's, that's just your ego. It's like, well, not just. It's like, well, this is, this is a very rich experience on many, many levels, and we can focus in all different ways. And that's great. Let's, let, let's do that. And for me, I want to open up to as much of it as possible. And that includes, I tell you, it was having kids. That's yeah, that, that'll help. You know, having kids. Before I had kids, all of that stuff sounded really attractive. Life's just an illusion. <laughs> My litmus test now is like, is that a good teaching? Is would I teach it to the kids? Uh -huh. Now, you know, or, or is that a total teaching? You know, would I teach it? Because... You know, I'm not there with my kids. I don't want to, you know, with them. They're just growing up. I'm not there going, you don't really exist, you know. <laughs> right. You know, you know, don't get an ego now. <laughs> I'd be mad. I want them to come in, be strong, healthy individuals who will, through that individuality, I hope, awaken to this deep love and this deep oneness. Uh, that's what I want. 
you know, I don't know. And, and then whether you get it on the Advaitic side, there's this kind of like, you know, you don't exist, which I wouldn't say to my kids. And on the more new agey side, there's plenty of just be in the moment, which I would also not say to my kids. Because <laughs> they're far too in the moment. And my job is to get them into time. Because, you know, it's like constantly with kids, the battle is like, well, don't think just about now, think about tomorrow. And so what I see is, oh, look, hang on. This is interesting. So, so spirituality needs to become more mature. Mm -hmm. It needs to actually see these polarities, that we want to be both of this. We want to the oneness and the separateness. We want to be like a little child dancing in the moment, for sure, because that's where you want to be. But also we want to be like, we've you know, spent a long time becoming responsible adults who are dealing with time and have to live life as it actually is. And, and those are not, uh, they, they can exist together. They do exist together already. Right. And all we have to do is be conscious that they exist together and then suddenly there's this huge breadth to our experience rather than some one narrow focus. I remember one time I was driving along with my mother and the car broke down. And, uh, and rather than deal with the situation in some practical way, I kind of went into Advaita mode and, and just said a whole thing's illusion, sat down on the side of the road and started, pulled out a book of uh, Shankara's Crest Jewel of Discrimination and <laughs> sat there and started reading it. <laughs> <laughs> did the car probably mend itself? No, it didn't. <laughs> you know what you were saying about um, the importance of, how do you put it, both and, as opposed to just this or this. I, I think, you know, it's not only a practical and helpful perspective in terms of helping people awaken, but I think it can be rather dangerous to um, adopt the, you know, only this perspective. I mean, it almost seems that the, you know, to find a guru or a spiritual teacher who hasn't gotten into some sort of trouble uh, in this day and age is the exception rather than the rule. Um, and, you know, often when you, you know, look into the, the stories around these people, they're saying things like, well, you know, it's all just, I, I'm not doing it. I, it's all just, the, you know, the karma of the people that I'm in, interacting with. I'm helping them play out their karma or helping them awaken their kundalini or, and all this, but it really I'm totally uninvolved. And some spiritual teachers whom I would consider to be uh, more honest and mature in their approach to the whole thing are, you know, saying the kind of thing you're saying, which is that, wait a minute, you know, we're, we're also, we may be that, impersonal absolute but we're also this personal relative and we need to be as good as we can be in in terms of our personal expression you know and, and we you know our realization of the impersonal absolute doesn't absolve us from being a moral person or you know a compassionate person and so on you know there's lots of ways of approaching it but the idea of holons of, of uh, Ken Wilber uses a lot Arthur Kersler developed a British philosopher is that you know the each as things expand and evolve, they include what's gone before. Hmm. You know, there was a time when you know, just being able to you know, make it to the toilet was a real challenge for a little lad of well, whatever I was, one. And, you know, luckily, so far, you know, that's not much of a challenge for me now. But it just still happens. It's just I don't think about it too much. Right. You know, I, it's just like that's part of my life. And as you grow, you know, you, you know, I can drive now and I can also listen to the radio and have a conversation. Because, and, and you just expand out. But you, the other things haven't gone anywhere. Mm -hmm. They're still there. And I think the, the process of, being, of psychological growth and development as a person doesn't stop. It just becomes something which maybe at one period in your life you really need to put all your, your attention on and it now becomes something which you you can do 
you're able to, you know, you, sometimes you may need to stop and give it all your attention again, but the, it's something which you've grown beyond and, and now there's something more, not instead, but as well. And that's what, much more like what life is really like. And my, I suppose that as I've got older, it, it's been about having the courage to just go, look for yourself, Tim. What is life actually like for you and the people you meet? And let's start with that. Hmm. Not with some fantasy about what it's like for someone you've never met or you, you imagine. <laughs> yeah. I've noticed among some of the Advaita teachers that they're kind of blossoming into a more holistic uh, perspective like that, you know, whereas they may have been a few years ago beating the drum of yep. only this, only this. Now they're saying, wait a minute, okay, now I think I better tell a, there's a more complete story to be told and they're, they're recognizing the subtleties and the nuances and it's the complexities. Really so do you notice that too, that's, that's, that's happening? I got really, definitely. I, I, I got invited to talk at a conference on non-duality in science in California last year or the year before. Mm -hmm. And you know, my role, I don't know how I managed to, to end up in this, but I, I tend to be, wherever I go, I'm kind of a bit of a heretic. Uh -huh. And uh, so even there, it suddenly was like normally, before I'd been the heretic who was going, look, come on, it's all one. And now I was the heretic who was going, no, no, look, it's all many. And what's, what really surprised me and was was beautiful was I got such an incredible response and it was it felt as if the whole audience this huge gathering of people was just waiting for this to go breathing a sigh of relief right yeah of course it's both it's both you see the problem is that normally we get this it's either one or the other because we feel that the deep thing is getting left out when people when we normally get involved with life it's like this is not being mentioned and for me the the breakthrough came with this image of lucid living. And, I, and maybe it'd be helpful to just say a little bit about that because... I want to get into that, but, uh, but let's talk just a little you bit were, more about your experience at that conference. Okay. I, I was sort of okay. wanting to attend that conference and I was thinking of attending it this, this fall. And, uh, and I, you know, I think and dwell a lot about this topic and this whole point of what you encountered at that conference concerns me a lot because there are a lot of people I'd like to interview, but I don't necessarily feel equipped to kind of deal deeply and sensitively enough with with this issue and uh, you know I don't have the wisdom necessarily to sort of help them undergo what I perceive as a necessary shift to a more holistic perspective so uh, if you wouldn't mind just dwelling a little bit more on what you said at that conference and perhaps uh, you know the audience received breathed the sigh of relief but were there some tough nuts that sort of like you know thought you were full of crap and didn't you know, didn't accept the, what you were saying and, and, and you know, whatnot. <laughs> I mean, certainly, I, I don't know whether they were in the audience because there's something magic happened for that event, I think, as it often does. But, I mean, I certainly know that there are a lot of people, I'm sure, who, who will dismiss what I say as, as well, you know, Tim's missed the point mm -hmm. and he hasn't got it. And, hey, you know, maybe that's right uh, and like I said you know I'm always carrying around this look it's just words I can be wrong about everything but what I've found is that the more we meet in this polarity that we can meet in the in the rawness the vulnerability it's just like to be able to just go up to someone and go look to experience this oneness one of the first things is to do is just notice just what it is to be human to know cautious scare people everyone's running around going oh I wish I shouldn't be this I shouldn't be that look you're like, everybody's scared Everybody's scared. If you're a human being and you're not scared, you have not been paying attention. <laughs> you just haven't been looking. You know, yeah. You're in denial. It's scary. Of course you're scared. Of course you are. We all are. Now, 
So that's natural. There we go. We're all scared. Are you confused? Of course you are. You know, you're born into this thing. You don't know what it is. You're born to two people who are your parents. They don't know what it is. You know, it's like no wonder we're also confused and, and messed up. And that's, of course we are. I feel sorry for all of us. You know, it's like, that's the <laughs> condition. Once you've kind of got that, like, okay, right. So there, well, let's meet in that. Now, hey, let's pay attention to really what this actually might be. Let's actually open up to maybe seeing it in a deeper way. And then that can just start. And then, oh, my goodness, there's this other place where you're completely safe. I mean, utterly safe. Safe, mm. safe in a way that you can, can't put into words. And then there's Tim, and he's very vulnerable, totally vulnerable. Anything could happen to him any moment, and not just to him, but the people he loves and does, you mm. know. And, and then there's this other place where it just is, and it's safe. Mm-hmm. And those two sit together in every moment. It's not one or the other, it's both at the same time. And just to be able to allow that, that oh, it's such a relief, I think, to both, both the safety as a relief, massive relief, obviously, but also the vulnerability that we can just hold each other's hand, you know, just like... There's a bit in the uh, issue of Panashad which I sent you in an email, which is something like, uh, into, into blinding darkness go those who worship uh, ignorance and even and into even greater darkness go those who worship uh, knowledge and I don't know if I'm interpreting that correctly but it sort of sounds to me like what this theme we've been talking about for the past 20 minutes you know of uh, you know f- excluding the the uh, the relative world the so-called world of ignorance to, you know and, and focusing exclusively on on the absolute and dismissing the the significance or relevance of of the relative you, 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 it's it's like you you continue to say and i love that phrase it's and what is it and and or how do you put it both and not both and both and both and yeah so maybe we've dealt yeah, on that point actually, of boy I, I nicked it from carl jung Oh, uh, who said once, uh, the good old Uncle Carl, <laughs> who was a great explorer, and said once, uh, not the niggardly either or, but the glorious both and. And I just read it and went, that's it. That's great. One of these days I'm going to get some t-shirts made up, and I think I'll put both and on one of my t-shirts. And an- another one I'll put a- on another t-shirt is paradox, which is, you know, one of my favorite words. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it? For me, it's absolutely central to that. The, the whole thing is paradoxical. Maybe there's one little thing which might be interesting to see, because for me, it's not like, well, uh, her, it's, it's deeper than I just want to have both. It's, it's actually seeing that the, the two are one. And, and like a, if you think about a, a, the par- a paradox, a polarity, you, you couldn't have a world with just in and not out. Right. They're opposites, but you, you, know, you couldn't turn just left. It has to be. Every opposite implies it's, it's the other opposite. Every pole implies the other pole. They exist together. So that there is one. It, it, the manyness is not like, well, and then there's this illusion. It's like, no, 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 the oneness is the manyness. The manyness is the oneness. Or, you know, in Buddhism, the, the forms is the emptiness. The emptiness mm-hmm. is the forms. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the role the forms play, apart from being absolutely magnificent and through the separateness, that's how we become conscious at all. So it's not mm. like we've made a mistake. It's that the one becomes conscious of itself through appearing as many. That's how right. it does it. Otherwise, how could it? So, and you see this with a child. You know, if you watch your children, they come in and there's this, you can look in the baby's eyes and, yeah, there's this huge oceanic oneness in a child. We've all been there, mm-hmm. but it's not conscious. 
And right. they're conscious, but they're not conscious of that. They're just like, whoa. And then as you <laughs> come in, you, what, what happens? You, you enter separateness. The world becomes broken up. You learn mm -hmm. words. Oh, this is this, this is this, this is, you know, up and down, in and out, self and other. And then you break, and then you arrive where we are, where every single thing I'm conscious of in this moment, I am conceptualizing as separate. That's why I'm conscious of it. Everything I've got, you know, the camera, the computer, my hands doing this funny business they do, your face, my body, the floor, the outside. The so the consciousness is discrimination. It is separateness. That's what consciousness is. And when there's no discrimination, we're in unconscious deep sleep. Mm -hmm. And the minute we become conscious, there's discrimination. So the separateness is not the problem. It's the foundation which allows us to be conscious. And then through the separateness, we can be conscious of the oneness, mm -hmm. which is the thing which was already there. There's so this the, uh, the, phrase in the Upanishads which goes something like, um, I don't know the Sanskrit, but the phrase is, the world reveals Brahman. Yes, isn't that just gorgeous. <laughs> so the one becomes many to know that it's one. So the journey for me, if you talk mythologically, would be unconscious oneness becomes conscious manyness on a journey towards conscious oneness. Mm -hmm. So the place that we can, uh, we can taste in this deep awake state is the one becoming conscious that it's one by appearing to be Tim or appearing to be Rick. And that is only possible through the separateness. So rather than it being some pernicious illusion, some error, some thing to be ignored, some fault, it's actually perfect. <laughs> it is actually the thing which allows the journey to happen at all. Yeah, and you're not just talking about a child being born and growing up and going through differentiation in order to realize oneness. You're talking about the whole universe from the Big Bang onward or whatever. It's the same process. It's yeah. The journey which a child makes is essentially the same journey that the whole universe is making. Mm -hmm. It's into separateness. And then by increasing separateness, if you think of the great myth of modern science, is, you know, from the singularity, the one, we've had this explosion of variety. And the more various it becomes, and the more complex it becomes, the more conscious it becomes. Yeah. Until here we are, pretty damn various and pretty damn complex and conscious. Now, that's got to be wonderful. The problem is, and you see this with kids, the same, I mean, we all go through it, is that you get sucked into the separateness. Now, you know, when you hit your teenage years, you know, it's like you're, you're suddenly in, and it's cold and scary, and you're isolated, and, and the suffering of separateness starts. But that is also something which pushes you to explore. And through that, you don't, the journey of maturation doesn't end. It continues right to your last breath, so that you're actually, oh, now I can start the journey to discover not just what this is, but what am I? And that's mm -hmm. where this knowledge of your deeper being opens up, and, and the game suddenly changes. Yeah, and, and you know, fortunately, more and more people so are actually... just gets a bad press, don't you think? <laughs> it does. You know, unfortunately, more and more people are consciously embarking <laughs> on that journey. Maybe in the 1950s, it was uh, pretty rare and uncommon to find someone who would talk like this. These days, it's like, as you say, on every street corner, there's somebody talking like this, more or less. And that's, that's encouraging. That's very, it's encouraging for the, for the planet, you know, which... If this weren't going on, we'd have reason to be very pessimistic, I think. Indeed, the whole drama, you know, the paradox again. The paradox, isn't it? That we know it's, it's like watching some amazing movie. It's like, 
it's all happening at once. Is it it's getting better and it's getting worse? <laughs> yeah. And it's like on a knife edge. <laughs> and it is. And at the same time, this incredible new consciousness is growing up. And you look at it and you, people, when I travel the world, which I, I do a fair bit, people are always saying to me, is it happening? You, you know, is it? <laughs> and I don't know, because I only get to meet the people who it's happening for. Mm. Uh, and from the people I meet, it's really happening. Something amazing is going on. Yeah. Um, you don't hear too much talk of God in Advaita circles, some of them anyway. But um, to me, whenever I look at like a nature program on, you know, on TV or, or anything, it, it, it always amazes me that any scientist or physician or anyone like that who really studies closely what's going on in the world could be an atheist. Because there, you look closely or look out through a telescope and there's just... To me, it's like the word intelligence is just flashing in neon letters. It's, there's such an immense, infinite, profound intelligence operative on every level of creation that it, it, you know, a, it blows is, the mind. I, science is, is, is just such a great thing. I love it so much. And, but it, it, you know, like, like everything in life, you know, it suffers from its, the conditions of its birth. And it was born and it could only form itself by being in opposition to this very... Um, dogmatic and superstitious religion, which mm. was around at the time, and therefore defined itself in opposition to that, which is not. Interesting. Actually, it, you know, it's a branch of the gnosis. It's about science means gnosis. It's about finding this deep knowledge, and and so what it's done is it's it's said, look, if we take the singularity and we call it God, we're anthropomorphizing it. If we say it's intelligence, we're projecting our humanity onto it. Whereas I feel it's the other way around. Yeah. I think that that we have come from it shows that it contains, in potential, all of this. Intelligence, fun, music, <laughs> you know, everything. It's, yeah, absolutely. It, it has all that within it. It must yeah. have. Where could it come from? Yeah, it's not like we're attributing human qualities to it if we call it intelligence. Rather, we as humans are, uh, you know, a minuscule reflection of a, of, of a vast intelligence. Yeah, exactly that, people exactly that way around. And when I look at, you know, when you look at, from that perspective, you know, and I look at my own experience of, say, creativity, which mm -hmm. I've studied a lot, I feel that by looking at human creativity, you can kind of understand natural creativity because it's a, a small reflection of the, mm -hmm. the very creative process and i look at the the process of, of evolution as we've come to understand it and it really reminds me of my own creative process that's probably that's what is meant by uh, man is made in the image of god yeah i tell you i tell you the thing which turns it around for me though is that is this idea that is that rather than god being at the beginning of time the superconscious being that just goes boo off you go it feels more <laughs> to me like actually this is God becoming conscious of itself. Yeah, yeah. So that if you like, God is the Alpha and the Omega. So in the Alpha state, the beginning state, the beginning, it's the unconscious oneness. Mm -hmm. And it's reaching towards the conscious oneness, which is, mm -hmm. you know, the end of time, as it were, the thing which you'll be the telos that you're being pulled to. And that what this is, is the journey between the two. So that it's not that, you know, because if you've got a conscious create God, you've got some problems, you know, dinosaurs being one of them. But you know, <laughs> there's plenty of, you know, it's like you look at the world and you just think, well, why would a conscious God do that? And that's why I say it's more like my own creative process, which is actually unconscious. It arises and then you see what it is. And that's what life seems to have done. It's arisen like a dream, unconsciously from the source and then it's looking at itself to see what it is and that's what we're doing oh what is this that we are 
and becoming more conscious of itself. Yeah, interesting. Well, it's certainly a mystery. Uh, <laughs> w- w- one of the interesting thoughts to, to contemplate is that the notion that if God is omnipresent, you know, as he's said to be, then it means where is he not? He's permeating every fiber of our being. And so who is actually having this conversation? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, because I've written these controversial books on Christianity, where I do a lot of radio and TV, and people often say to me, so, so you, do, you, do you believe in God? And uh, I've just, now I've just got to the point where I just go, look, I don't believe in anything but God. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> uh, Bill Moyers asked, uh, who's that great guy who wrote? Joseph Campbell. Bill Moyers asked Joseph Campbell what he believed, and Joseph Campbell said, it doesn't matter what I believe. What I'm interested in is what I experience. That's it. <laughs> I love Joseph Campbell. But, yeah. I mean, I feel so grateful to these pioneers, these people that, that have gone before and opened up the, the way through for us. Because the reason that this is happening, this phenomenon we've been talking about, is because of all of those guys. They went in there and got the machetes out and cut down a path for us to walk through. Mm-hmm. And we can walk there. And as we do that, we can see where they miss something or we can take it further, hopefully. But we're standing on the shoulders of giants, as Newton said, and yeah. I was so grateful. Well, to those who are listening, uh, I hope you're enjoying this. I'm sure you are. Um, and we've barely scratched the surface of Tim Freak. Um, we're going to keep scratching for a while. And then uh, if we feel we haven't completed everything that we can talk about, uh, we'll have another conversation in a couple of months. But a little bit earlier, you, were, you started to introduce the concept of lucid living, and I kind of interrupted you. So I definitely want you to cover that. And there's also like a seven-point thing that you outline. I forget what you call it. Is, is it seven? Kind of like seven... Mm stages of realization or something it's it's really all within the lucid living thing rick and i I think you know what what i did in my book lucid living is to break it down it's just into seven insights which you i could explore and you know it's not magic seven it's not because of seven chakras and (laughs) it's just seven worked out as a number and these seem to be key things to grasp yeah let's go Uh, through it all there's plenty of time and if we don't as i say if we don't have time in this interview we'll do more stuff later but let's let's uh, unpack it in some detail what I'd like to do in this is rather than going through those seven points which people can have a look read in your book sure yes hey read my book (laughs) as P.T. Barnum said always leave them wanting more (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. go now Uh, just to give away the best best bits just to say look look, this is the real insight I have found it incredibly helpful and and many many people I know that I work with have found it incredibly helpful because it's very simple which is that this awakened state, which we've been looking at, is similar to lucid dreaming, except it's right now. Mm-hmm. And what you can see with that is like, and that's hence the lucid living. If you think about a dream, in a dream, you have a polarity to your nature. You don't know it when you're dreaming, but you do. That on the one hand, you're the person you appear to be in the dream, You're in a world, it seems very real, sometimes it scares the pants off of you, it's so real. And yet, if you become more conscious and you dream lucidly, you dream consciously, you recognize this interesting predicament where you're you're having a dream, you're in the dream, you're that person in the dream, but what you really are, or your your essential nature, your essence, is you're the dreamer. Mm -hmm. And as the dreamer, you're not in the dream, the dream is in you. So you see this polarity, this paradox, as you said, to your nature, that you are in it on the one hand, and also turn it around and it's in you. 
that on the one hand you're a person in a world, and on the other hand you're what? You're the awareness within which a whole world is arising. It, when I look carefully at this moment, it seems the same now. That I have a polarity to my nature. And on the one hand, I'm this guy Tim, in this flow of forms and colors and shapes and sounds. And here he is, and he's an object. He's a thing. He's something I'm conscious of. And on the other hand, I'm a subject. I'm this presence I could call I, or whatever. I'm the awareness which is witnessing this. And when I look for that awareness, it has no form. The Upanishads say, you know, what is it that you can, that, that uh, you cannot see, but which makes seeing possible? Mm. What is it you cannot hear, which makes listening possible? What is it you cannot taste, that makes taste possible? What is it you cannot imagine, which makes imagination possible? It's that awareness which is witnessing all of that, and it's not in the forms. So where the hell is it? You know, I often want to... I want to get a zip in my bald head. You know, I, I stand up life philosophy. I think it'd be really good. You know, I have a hat and take it off, and there's a zip, and I could go, zoop, excuse me, madam, would you just take out awareness and show them? Here it is. Oh, I thought he'd have a bigger one. That would freak people out. It wouldn't be great. But, you know, they're not going to find it. That's the point. You know, right. it's not, it looks like it's inside your head because you look at somebody and you think it's, and you know they're conscious, you know they're aware, but it's not in there because awareness isn't in the forms. The forms are in awareness, like a dream. And so here we are in this predicament where if we pay attention, you can see that there's this polarity. On the one hand, here's Tim. He's a guy, a person, just an everyday guy, in the forms. And then there's this other presence, which is just what? It's an emptiness. It just is. It's a presence within which this is all arising. And so time is arising, in that sense, within me. And which is true? Well, they're both true. And I find myself living lucidly. And what that does for me is it goes, that's why it's the both and. Ah, uh, because I'm both of those. That I, I'm, I'm li when I'm living lucidly, I, ah, there's this big presence. And then as I go into that, there's no, di there's no, there's no differentiation in that. And just like a dreamer is one with a dream, I'm, I'm one with everything. It's just like here, I'm one, but he, Tim's not. Tim's, Tim's different to everyone. That's what's so great about him. He's, he's quirky and different. And, you know, there's a difference between me and the mug. If there wasn't, I'd be in trouble. You yeah. know what I mean? Uh, that's what, you know, we're all separate. Here it's many. Here it's one. Here it's in time. Here it's timeless. Just is. Here it's, uh, I'm in the world. Here the world is in me. And it's like a perfect mirror. It's like this mm -hmm. perfect, ah, mm. like in a dream. And we go into that state every night, think nothing of it. And then if you use that analogy for now, this deep awake opens up. Mm -hmm. And when there's the both, that is when the big love happens. Mm. And, and for me, that is what it's really all about. That's the real thing. When you come into this place where you know that you're separate and not separate with everyone, I mean, I've just been with my son who's not been well, and, and I love him. And it's because he's separate from me, but he's also not separate. Mm -hmm. That's what love is. Love is mm -hmm. how oneness feels. Ah, nice phrase. <clears throat> and so if you come into this place where you're one with everything and everyone, then quite naturally, this big love arises. And, it's, and it arises where? In the body. It arises in the separateness. Mm -hmm. You feel it. That's it's where it's right felt. At, 
into ooh, all of that, the juice of life. And that, so that, that's why this image for me enables me to go, that's the both end. Hmm. That's it. I have a friend who likes to say we're all sense organs of the infinite. I'm kind of reminded by what you were saying of like when televisions were first brought to African tribes and things and they showed them, you know, people on television and the people freaked out because they thought that those people were in the television and like if you turned off the television, you know, the people died or something. What happened to them? We think of awareness as being maybe in the body, you know, but I like to think of us more as being like a television or a radio where it's just an instrument which is able to kind of detect or transmit a field which is ubiquitous, you know, radio waves or television waves, they're everywhere, and yet in this particular instrument, their existence is able to be detected. So it's like, you know, consciousness is a field, it's everywhere, awareness, and we each are like little radios, little televisions that uh, are able to pick up on it and tune into it to varying degrees of clarity, you know, and express different, maybe some of us pick up on some channels, some on others, you know, according to how we're constructed, how Mm -hmm. we're constituted. I think that's a lovely image. To me, it's like, look, there's a field of unconscious awareness and we are centers of consciousness within it. And you just see that in that center of consciousness, your attention can just move and just moves wherever it wants around mm-hmm. that field and the field can expand and you can you know your your consciousness of it can expand and 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 the big jump comes is when you recognize all oh, right so i'm the field right we're right. all the field uh-huh. so there's a place where you're separate and there's a place where you're not it's almost like if i come back into the eye right now it always feels to me like a doorway because it feels at first as if i'm coming where's the witness where's the, what's what where's a and coming back into myself and it seems to be getting smaller and smaller and smaller and then it's suddenly it's a moment where pow and then it's everywhere i look in one direction and it's like it's just tim and i'm looking at the camera i'm talking to you and it's all very particular and then i look back on itself and it's everywhere you know and you just oh which way are you going <laughs> to uh, with the lucid living which is a very beautiful clear explanation of mechanics of things is that a practice that you actually advocate for people to somehow do or is it more just a philosophical perspective that you present to them to kind of enable them to see things from a different angle uh well let me just say that i think all philosophical perspectives are things you do first of all i think philosophy is the ancient practice of awakening and always has been so how we use words to conceptualize the thing you can never say is itself transformative yeah, that's, uh, that's grown on me more and more as I've done these interviews. It's like, because I had this bias or suspicion that a lot of times people substitute an intellectual understanding or insight for the actual experience to which it points. And I think that can still happen and people still do that. But I think I was a little bit underplaying the value of intellectual insight to really transform experience. Yeah, I mean, the mind is another thing which gets a terribly bad press because the mind can drive you bonkers. <laughs> But also, it can wake you up. I mean, it's yeah. like everything. It has two sides. It's mm-hmm. not good or bad. It's, it depends. Yeah. So partly philosophy, you know, philosophy is itself. You know, it's love of Sophia, of wisdom, and it will lead you there. But from that, I've developed these techniques to then say, okay, as you understand this, now let's see it. Because what I do, you know, I have the, the luxury, I guess, to spend long periods looking. I just look. And that the, the lucid living came from looking, really looking. And, and it's difficult, you know, because you, we all look through the lenses of things we've picked up. So I picked up a lot of Eastern ideas or this idea or that. So I'm looking through those. 
and then to go, no, just look, just keep looking. And is there a better way to say this? Is there a clearer way to say this? Then to get people to actually do that looking. And, you know, the biggest thing is, is when we do it together, these eye-to-eye techniques. I, I run these events, the mystery experience. What is that exactly, an eye-to-eye it's, technique? Well, what I do is I get together people Group for a weekend and take them through to the lucid living state, to the deeper weight, to the big love. And, and I'm astonished, really, how, how readily people just pop and one of the things I do with people is I use the sensation, you know, just looking or listening, touching, or the things which are happening anyway. But to enter through them and to do that with somebody else. So what I, what I like to do with people, is, you know, is rather than, especially when you've got people together, is rather than get people to just close their eyes and go just within yourself, and is to say, look, we can see this in each other. Mm-hmm. And once you, can, once you start to become conscious, oh, look, what I am is that which is looking that can't be seen. It isn't in the forms. And then you look at somebody else and you realize that what you are connecting with when you look at someone's eyes, you also can't see. Huh. That, 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 that which cannot be seen is connecting with that which cannot be seen through the looking. Mm. And that is a very, very profound thing to experience. And it's something which is just there instantly you know it's there in every moment now of course it takes a while people often get caught up in the you know you know all that stuff how do i look and, you know but once you've got through all of that you're just looking at somebody and going oh my god i see your face how wonderful but what I, what you are that thing that, that i'm really connecting with i can't see it and i can't be seen and therefore through the dance of forms the one is connecting with itself hmm. And that's when this enormous big love starts to emerge. And so I dive people further and further into that experience uh, until they know. So, so you have little sessions throughout the weekend where you pair people up and they look at each other and... Or, or listen to each other or touch each other's mm-hmm. fingers. Or, and then mm-hmm. I have an event on the Saturday night where we dive right into it. And that's when people usually just go, oh, the hell with it. And, just, and what I love, Rick, is on the Sunday seeing people, and on Saturday night too, where people are just being themselves suddenly all of that, you know, it's like and in their humanity, you know, they're able to be just like, you know, people start off and they're all like this, and then by the end it's like, oh, you know, it's like, hi, and, yeah. Yeah, and it's because there's this deep love behind it, suddenly it's okay, and there's this huge weight comes off your shoulders, and you can just be, just be. And That's great. It's nice, it's a lot worse, more than it's beautiful. Do you find uh, from, you know, people fe- giving you feedback that um, the influence of that weekend is rather, uh, it's sticky? I mean, it, does it stay with them? Some and some, I'd say the majority do. A lot of people go away and they have a pretty amazing time. Um, I do encourage people to say, you know, that to, to realize this is not something which can just last, I don't think. I would say, actually, it's not even desirable to. You know, when I dive really deep into that oceanic oneness when you go right down into the depth you know mm-hmm. there is so much love you know it's almost hard to function you know i certainly would not at that moment go right i need to ring my bank manager about my mortgage <laughs> you know it's just like you know mortgage money I don't know, just, uh, you know, that's not going to happen so i feel this is again the polarity I, we need to move between these states the important thing is that you know it's there and that you can come back to it I would say that the part of the game is it's all it's about 
merging them or bringing, you know, enabling, stabilizing or integrating so that you can be talking to your bank manager and yet be in that consciously in that deep state that it, again, doesn't have to be either or can be both. And, you know, you can be in the most profound mystical height of experience and yet be chopping vegetables or, you know, riding your bicycle or dealing with your sick child or whatever else life throws at you. Easier to chop vegetables, in my experience, than it is to deal with your bank manager. That may be just me. Everything has a polarity to it. That's the way Mm -hmm. it looks. So when I look at my attention, it also has a polarity to it. An image, an analogy, is like sight. If I look at my sight, there's a kind of focus to my sight, Mm -hmm. and then there's all this peripheral vision, ambient vision. Right. And my attention seems the same. I put my attention on something, and then actually there's a whole ambient awareness where I, there's a whole lot of other things I'm conscious of. So right now, for instance, I'm concentrating on talking to you, mm-hmm. but in the, you know, I am also aware you know, if somebody knocked on the door or if something happened, I'd be there. When I get together for a mystery experience, and I think it's really important, personally, that we dive deeply regularly, like meditation. You know, meditation, mm-hmm. close your eyes, go right into that big ocean, you're pushing, the, letting the world dissolve. You're not worrying about anything. You're not concerned. You're devoted to that exclusively for a little bit. And then what happens then is you take your attention and you push it right back here and there's that big oceanic, beautiful oneness. You're being consciously in the state of deep sleep, really. It's all be- It's that huge whoa. But the, the ambient awareness is still there. So if mm-hmm. your kid cried out, help, you'd be there. But at that point, you would reverse it, and you'd take your attention, and then that would be in the separateness, and then this would be in the ambient awareness. So you're no mm. longer swimming in this big ocean anymore. You're now, it's just there, you're there, it's there, but now you're like, this, and you're able to just sort of deal with the separateness much more. And yeah. what I, I feel is that what I'm looking at is like, you know, can we just move those, and, we, and the danger is you lose this. You mm-hmm. just forget that's even there. And I don't know what it, what's been it's been unlike in your journey, but I see it with people all the time, and I've seen it with myself. Is that when you lose one or the other, it's like the other doesn't exist. So if you come right back into this, it can feel like that's all just an illusion, waste of time. And then you get a rude reminding that's not. And if you get lost in all of this, it's like, yeah, did I? It was some tie I had. I, you know, I felt like I was awake, or you know, I don't know what it was. And you kind of forget. And the art really is to keep returning to it enough that you don't forget it's real, that they're both real. Exactly. I mean, that's been my journey pretty much. You, you alluded to my journey. I've been meditating for 43 years, and, and there was a time when I would just sort of de- dive deep into meditation and exclusively that, and then I'd come out and I would seem to lose it. And, uh, but back and forth over all these thousands of days and weeks, um, you know, the, it's gotten integrated, and so it's not one or the other. It's like, but like you say, you know, the attention will sort of zoom in on something that needs to be focused on and then kind of, you know, maybe yeah. zoom back out to a more broad perspective according to the circumstances. And it's not something you have to manipulate. It's something that happens spontaneously as as you roll through the day, um, just kind of a natural functioning thing. You're not trying to, you don't, you don't live being by virtue of some mental gymnastics of holding on to it. It's just there to whatever extent it's there. In, in India, they use the analogy of dyeing cloth. You know, you take the cloth, dip it in the colored dye, put it out in the sun, let it bleach. Then you put it in the dye again, gets all bright and colored, put it out in the sun, let it bleach. And you, you repeat this, and over time it bleaches less and less, and eventually it's just as colored in the sun as it, was, as it is in the vat of dye. Yeah, that's, that's nice. That's a nice analogy. There's always this movement. 
I think, between, yeah. the, between the poles. That's the mm-hmm. key. So, what, so for people that come to, to my events, I'm, I try and, you know, I mean, some people go back and, you know, it'll stir up a whole load of stuff inside. As, as it can, the, yeah. It stir and, and they'll yeah. be like, oh my God, I didn't expect this. And <laughs> to understand that, too, because uh, that's part of the journey. That is part of it. And yeah. It's interesting. Well, it's you know, it fascinates me. I be, I think probably because it's just on my mind at the moment that I've, I've been thinking recently how since we imported a lot of the, the Eastern ideas, especially the kind of enlightened master idea, we kind of lost touch with our own indigenous. You know, in our own in our own culture or in the the best of the Christian culture, you know, our saints were never these perfect. They were people who struggled. Yeah, they sure. were people who went into the dark night. They were people who were willing to engage with the difficulty of the journey. You know, it was much more dynamic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I think there's room for, for merging these two together. So what I encourage people to do is just take the big experience and then go into their lives and then mm-hmm. keep trying to reconnect with it as they want, as they can, and as they want to, and as it's a joy for them. But that it's good either with myself or with somebody to come back and have the deep experience again. And then go out, and then you come back, and that's the dying in the wool, I guess. That's the, like you know, you yeah. meditation, yeah. coming together, and just and as you do, and that's all that's happened to me, I suppose. That's why over the years, it's like you know that it's there, even when life is rocky, it's there. Yep, yep. I also sort of think of it as a seesaw in a way, where you know the heavier weight kind of tends to push the seesaw down to this end, and it's it's more it's sort of like the more. Um, you know, if if sort of being, if we want to call it being or consciousness, is very you know fleetingly, hardly well established, any little thing can throw it off, and you know you're overshadowed, you're freaked out. You're, I keep using the word freaked out. I'm sorry. <laughs> Take it as a compliment. I, I use it uh, <laughs> you know, where, but then as it becomes sort of better established, you know, you can deal with with more and more, you know overshadowing situations without there being without there being overshadowing you know and, and eventually i mean if christ existed and that's a whole other topic we can talk about you know theoretically you know even on the in the midst of being crucified his self-realization wasn't lost you know his well that's the key that's the key image i mean the the jesus thing is too much to go into but let me just use this one bit which is from the gnostic tradition in the gnostic tradition they have this image which they call the laughing jesus mm. and in there in one of the gnostic gospels they create this this dua, this polarity um which i call lucid living very clearly because in their gospel jesus the man is dying on the cross in terrible agony, having been betrayed by all his friends, and you know, just like the worst thing you can imagine. Yeah. And the real Jesus, or Jesus' essence, is in a cave of light, laughing, and he says, uh, I suffer, but I, I seem to suffer, but I don't suffer, because I distinguish what I am from what I appear to be. Yeah. And, you know, it's an even deeper li- image than the laughing Buddha, really, because the laughing Buddha is just transcendental, but the laughing Jesus is like, well, look, even, you know, that's the power of the image right in the suffering exactly surrendering you, to that and also free do you know who malcolm muggeridge was yeah Remember i him? certainly do yeah yeah there was an interview he did with marishi mahesh yogi back in the early 60s along along with the abbot of downside i believe he was called so so it's marshy and this abbot interviewed by malcolm muggeridge and marshy is saying christ never suffered you know, and the abbot's like, what? Yeah, how could you say that? <laughs> but that's the point he was making. And people saw him suffering from their perspective and thought, oh, this must be terrible. But from his inner status of, you know, realized soul, uh, unshakably so, he was beyond that, 
you know, certainly the body was suffering and pain must have been felt, but there was a realm which was untouched by all that. Yeah, but you know what is so beautiful and so so why the Jesus story in all its many many forms has has lasted as long as it has is because it also has the humanity in it. He is also the guy going, "Why have you forsaken me?" He's like us, you know. He's like we are. We you know we're there going, "Oh, why me?" You know, <laughs> it's like you know, oh <laughs> yeah, let this cup pass from me if, yeah. if you. And and yet there's this deeper part, and it's not it's not one or the other; it's both. Yep, there we go again. Yep. And I think the takeaway point from this bit of our conversation is that, you know, people shouldn't feel discouraged if they, you know, feel they've gained something and then lost it again uh, because it's a growth process. You know, they shouldn't feel discouraged if they go to some weekend and have a glorious experience and feel high as a kite and then come home and, you know, get all bogged down again. Just uh, carry on. You know, there's going to be continued growth. And I know that the word growth is anathema in certain Advaita circles. You know, there are no levels. There is no progress, yada, yada. But realistically speaking, in terms of what you said earlier, you know, if you look at what your life actually is, is, as opposed to some pie-in-the-sky notion of, of what reality might be, uh, we grow, we evolve. And so if you can kind of confront that, accept that, um, honestly, then it's, you know, rather than being sort of kicking yourself every time you, you seem to screw up, you say, okay, well, I'm growing and, you know, let's... I tell you, Rick, the thing which has changed for me, I, I used to think, like, you know, that I, if I stared at a white wall long enough or, you know, followed my breath long enough or gave up enough things and didn't have sex and all that, then I would become some sort of bright-eyed uber being who was, I don't know what. <laughs> and none of that has happened. Tim has stayed resolutely Tim. <laughs> Fundamentally, he is still, he's just a bit fatter, a bit bolder, and, you know, had a, had a whole load more experiences. Apart from that, he's exactly the same. Yeah. The thing which has changed is I don't give myself such a hard time about that. Hmm. It's that, you know, that, that I don't, I don't, that I've realized that that's all right. Yeah, you've come to understand that that's the way it's supposed to be. Yeah, and that through just being Tim in all of his quirkiness, that this experience of awakening can open up through that, and that then Tim can be a, a vehicle for love in the world, and that that's enough, that is more than enough. Yeah. Well, you're doing it, I must say. Uh, you know, I mean, you've been a vehicle for me in that in that sense. It's just a joy to listen to you, and uh, I want to start reading some of your books. Well, good. <laughs> I'm an author, so that's, yeah. that's how I put food on the table for my kids. And, and also, you know, immense, I'm writing at the moment. I mean, I take, I take writing quite seriously. I, you know, it's a problem because mm -hmm. it's slow for me. Spirituality needs to evolve. That's my feeling. We've got this crazy idea that the old was good. Well, the old was mm. old. Bits of it were good, bits of it weren't, like everything. And we need to keep it evolving and, and, and keep bringing our... Each new generation runs with the ball, passes it to the next. And we've got it right now. We need to make it integral. We need to make it in, in, embrace these polarities. So we need to make it transrational but rational. And we need to clean up its act. We need to make it opening up to the oneness but really engaging with the manyness. We need to make it something which can actually take us to this place where everything's okay and allow that to express itself in love to transform this place where sometimes it's not. Well, a lot of the time it's not. For me, the, the books and, and everything, it's just how together can we do this? And bit by bit, we are. Yeah, that's a good point. Andrew Cohen talks a lot about that too with his you know, evolutionary enlightenment idea. Yep. 
that it's not a static fixed thing and uh you know we're all we're not going to become vedic rishis necessarily we're going to you know be britishers or americans or whatever you know living in a, in a totally different culture but with some of the same essential realization because the tr you know that the deepest level is eternal and well, is, you, is, you talked about you know earlier about these people who are, you know there's the, the, how great it is that there are people who could be really bright lights and it is great and and i look at the people who've been really great lights for me you know living and dead Mm -hmm. And there's a whole load of them that I look at and I go, I am so pleased that you are or have been who you are, but I don't want to be like you. Right. I wouldn't want that, you know, actually, <laughs> that wouldn't be right for me at all. Uh, but you are you. And often what it is about these people is they're just themselves. They're actually being them. I find that actually with the few people I've met who might be classified as saints, there's a a sort of a, a lively, vivacious, charismatic quality to their personalities. There's no plain vanilla whatsoever, you know? I mean, they, they radiate a lot of consciousness, a lot of being, but, but they're full of humor and, and mischievous, mischievousness and, you know, personality and, and ranges of emotion, you know, anger and, and sadness and bliss and happiness and the whole gamut, you know, um, probably much more vividly than the average person, you know, so the, the, this whole notion of the placid sort of, you know, colorless sap of a personality hasn't been in evidence in the, the, the instances that I've encountered. Same for me. That's why for me now I don't talk about enlightenment. I talk about enlivenment. Huh, good word. That's the place for me. It's, yeah. it's actually getting both going. Well, I feel like I could go on forever with you because you're really fun to talk to, but I know your, your boy is sick and I don't want to, and it's getting later there and I don't want to keep you too long. So uh, maybe we should wrap it up and, and maybe in a couple of months we could do another one and I'll, I'll kind of do, do my homework and think of more things we can talk about so we don't just say the same stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure, you know, my experiences, I mean, we were talked earlier about my friendship with Peter Gandhi and with many people. Well, we've been having one conversation now for over 40 years <laughs> and it's still interesting because life's like that and I thoroughly enjoy talking to you. But, so I'm yeah. sure we can, have a, we can have a good time. Yeah, I mean, don't, don't you find that you're probably talking about the same point now that you were 20, 30 years ago with Peter, but you just kind of keep rehashing it and getting to deeper nuances, deeper levels of the, of the very same points. Really? And you need to keep coming back to it from different angles all the time, don't you find? That's what yeah, yeah, you do. You never have the final take on it. So, uh, well, you, you have, is there anything uh, that, I'm sorry, go ahead. I just noticed that you have on your Skype little bubble. Little message there. Message there. Whatever you think it's more than that. From yeah. Incredible string band. And I don't think you could put it better than that. Whatever you think, it's more than that. So there's always more. Did you ever listen to them? I did. That one was from Job's Tears. If you want to listen to that song, they, they sing it near the end of Job's Tears. Fantastic song. So uh, let me just wrap it up um, by saying that I, I really appreciated this opportunity. And for those listening, I've been talking with Timothy Freak, who lives in the UK but travels around the world. I'll be putting on batgap.com this interview, but also uh, links to Tim's site and anything else he wants me to put. You'll send me a little bio, I'll stick there. 
people listen to this in various ways and so just in case you happen to be you know one guy wrote me said he listens while riding on a horse in Arizona um, so if in case you're unaware that if you found this on YouTube for instance and you're unaware that there is a website where all of these are are archived go to batgap.com b-a-t-j-p which is an acronym for Buddha at the gas pump the implication of which is that ordinary people these days are getting enlightened or whatever word we want to use Go there. You'll find this and, and other interviews, and you can subscribe to an email newsletter to be notified of new ones. Uh, subscribe to a podcast. Subscribe to an RSS feed to have it come in your blog reader, and anything else I manage to dream up as I wade through this technological quagmire that we call the Internet. So thanks a lot, Tim, and uh, we'll revisit in, in a couple of months. Great. Well, thank you for, um, for having me involved. It's been a joy.